So our reading this evening is taken from 2 Peter, and I'm going to be reading chapter 1, verses 12 to 18, which is on page 1222 of the uh, Bibles in the pews. It's 2 Peter, chapter 1, and I'll start at verse 12. So I will always remind you of these things, even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth you now have. I think it's right to refresh your memory as long as I live in the tent of this body, because I know that I will soon put it aside, as our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And I will make every effort to see that after my departure, you will always be able to remember these things. We did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He received honour and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. Great, thank you very much, Nicholas, for reading that to us. Um, I'd love you to keep it in your eye line so you can see 2 Peter chapter 1. Short reading, isn't it? Um, And we're not going to refer to lots of other places, I don't think. But keep it there, and uh, we'll hopefully be able to look at it as, as we look at those verses together. Let's pray for God's help as we do so. Thank you, Heavenly Father, that Peter was able to record this teaching for us near the end of his life. And we thank you for preserving him and preserving your truth through him. And we pray that it would live on in us as we look at the Bible this evening. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Place your hands on the Testament and repeat after me the words printed on the card. I swear by Almighty God that the evidence I shall give will be the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Well, I don't know if there's words which are still daily heard or are up and down the country in courtrooms register with people, as they said. There is now an option to opt out of them and say a sort of non-religious version, a declaration that does mention God. But it's, it's powerful that people take the New Testament in their hands and make that declaration before they give evidence. How many people ask themselves why they place their hand on a part of the Bible as they take that oath, I wonder. I assume the logic is that the evidence they're going to give will be a word of truth, just as the New Testament is a word of truth. And that may raise a big question for you, small flyer, big questions, but questions about the Bible are often in people's minds, aren't they? Can we really say that the Apostles' message from 2,000 years ago, preserved in the New Testament, is the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? Can we really trust it? Can we take it seriously in today's world? 
And it's striking to me, as you look at those words we've had read to us, that the Apostle Peter obviously faced questions like that in his own day. Plenty of people obviously found his message hard to take, particularly his precious promises of a future day when the corruption of this world will be over at the return of Christ. The truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, Peter, come on. In his day, as in ours, there were plenty of other voices that dismissed his message as fairy tales, as not fact, and that focus on the future as being a bit too heavenly minded to be any earthly use. So I don't know if you've come tonight with questions about the Bible. You're unconvinced that the Bible's message is true or relevant. Let's look at what Peter says to persuade his readers to take his message seriously. I've got two points just on those half a dozen verses. You need to come back next week for more on this theme, I think. To begin with, he speaks up unashamedly for the lasting relevance of his message. And I need to point you to verses 12 to 14 for that. Well, just 12 to 13 to start with. So he says, I'll always remind you of these things, even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth you now have. I think it's right to refresh your memory as long as I live in the tent of this body because I know that I will soon put it aside as our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. Somebody told me the other day what the three distinctive features of old age are. The first is, when you're bending down to tie your shoes up, you look for something else to do while you're down there. Second is this, you always tell the same jokes. And as for the third one, whatever was that third one, I can't remember. Anyway, let me just um, move on swiftly at this point. Peter the Apostle, he's writing this letter, he is aging fast. He knows that his body won't go on forever. It's like a tent that's going to soon be taken down. It needs a complete overhaul, his body. I'm not sure whether he only had a small stock of jokes. But he certainly wasn't getting absent-minded or forgetful about the truth. And he didn't want others to be either. So how does verse 12 start? So I'll always remind you of these things. Why are you doing that, Peter? Is it because you think we don't know them? No. He knows that they were firmly established in the truth. But this is Peter's teaching style. Reminding, reminding going over it again, reminding a bit more, so on. And how long would he go on reminding them? Well, verse 12 actually tells you, you've got the word there, always remind you of these things. In fact, of course, the approach of Peter's death adds an extra dimension to these things. I know it's coming soon, he says, and verse 15, I'm going to make every effort to see that after my departure, you will always be able to remember these things. So the problem is that when Peter dies, there is a danger at that point that his message will die as well. And he wants them to be able to remember it forever. He actually repeats that word always in verse 15. It's why he wrote the letter. In all probability, it's actually what brought Mark's gospel into being as well. Because all the early evidence from the early church points to that being an account of Peter's memoirs of Jesus' life. 
So see what he's doing. He's reminding. I actually thought, I haven't got much to say about communion. We've got communion later on in the service. Is it not interesting that Jesus similarly thought reminding was so important? Not enough that he died on the cross for us. Of the one, one of the main things he gave us to do as, as believers after him is to take bread and wine in our hands and handle it, as it were, that we might be reminded what he'd done for us on the cross. Peter's playing that sort of tune to us here. Notice what he doesn't say. Peter doesn't appoint some apostolic successor to continue to define Christian doctrine with the same authority that he'd had. He doesn't suggest that the church will need to redefine the Christian message to proclaim it afresh in each new generation as if it were the new message after he's died. Why not? Why make so much of reminding them of the old truths? Well, the answer is simply because Peter was convinced of the continued relevance of his message. There's a technical theological term for it. It's called the sufficiency of Scripture. No additions, no alterations are necessary. God would go on speaking through the same message that Peter and the apostles had spoken and written. He speaks today through what he spoke back then because his message has this lasting relevance. It's sufficient. Now, obviously, this is hotly disputed today. People will say, look, society's moved on, times have changed. Surely the Bible can be left quietly to gather dust. And modern man has only pity for the person that still believes Scripture. It's a story that I was told as a young Christian that I enjoyed. I don't know if it's entirely PC anymore, but a Western explorer who came upon an island tribesman who was reading his Bible. So he's reading the Bible. You get the visualizer of this. He's reading the Bible while he cooks up supper for the whole village in a large cauldron. Oh dear, said the Westerner. You don't believe the old-fashioned nonsense in that book, do you? We grew out of that in our country ages ago. Look, said the tribesman, if it weren't for that book, you'd be in that pot. Very fashionable to say that in the West, the apostles' message isn't relevant. We've grown out of it. We've moved on. But just think about it for a moment. God hasn't changed. Human nature hasn't changed since Peter's day. And crucially, it's a bit more technical, this bit, our position in the time scale of God's rescue is actually no different to Peter's either. By which I mean that in the whole unfolding plan of God, so this is right in my face here, I'm going to move it out of the way so I can swing my arms freely. In the whole unfolding plan of God, we actually occupy the same block of history as Peter's readers did. Once Jesus died and rose and ascended, in one sense, nothing more needs to happen before the next event, which will be when Jesus returns. And we're in a period now which the Bible calls the last days. They run from the ascension right the way through to the second coming. And the same message is relevant throughout. We're not in a new age, so we're not to expect a new message. God speaks direct to us, but he speaks to us through the apostles, people like Peter. And we aren't promised any new messages independent of them. 
If anything, we're warned to be skeptical about new words from God. You and I ought not to be expecting new truths, personal words from God over and above Scripture. He hasn't promised them, and we don't need them. And we ought not to tire of hearing old truths repeated. My heart mustn't sink if I don't learn 15 new things from every sermon. Reminders are actually what I need. Monday morning in the office, I need a reminder of Jesus' return if I'm to stay godly. Tuesday morning in school, or when I'm having a lion during half term, I need a reminder of Jesus' death on the cross then if I'm to stay confident of God's love. Wednesday evening in the home group, again, it's exactly the same. And it's the Apostles' message that is going to remind me because of its lasting relevance. Well, that at least is the claim. But hang on, is it reliable? Let's go on to our next reason to take Peter's message seriously. And it's this, the reliability of the Apostles' message. If we look at verse 16... We'll see how insistent Peter is about this. Verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power. That's what he's saying. I'm insisting on it. These are not made up, invented mythologies. We apostles weren't literary geniuses like the poet Homer, writing mythology that no one seriously thought was true. No. How does verse 16 go on? But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Um, For the sake of example here, he's going to go on to mention one incident from the life of Jesus, the transfiguration, when Jesus was up a mountain with three of his disciples and suddenly his appearance was visibly transformed into a display of, of dazzling brightness. We read about that elsewhere. And we're very quick to write off this sort of account Um, like that as a story belonging to a a primitive day. But Peter doesn't want to let us do that. He says, we were there, and in the cold light of day, in full possession of all our faculties, we saw it all happen with our eyes. As one preacher put it like this, the apostles may not have had cars or computers or any of the trappings of the scientific age, But in one respect, they were exactly the same as us. They had eyes in their heads, in exactly the same place as you and me. And there are first century statues to prove it. They knew what they'd seen. So that's the first guarantee of the apostles' reliability, because they were eyewitnesses. And perhaps you ought to try and feel the force of that. Maybe you come across people who think that the New Testament, as we have it today came into being at the end of a long process of Chinese whispers. Anybody who's played that game knows that things don't get passed on accurately, necessarily from one person to the next. And there's the the classic example of a general who sent the message, send reinforcements, we are going to advance. And at the end of the chain of communication, the line came back slightly differently. The message received was, send three reinforcements, we are going to advance. So Chinese whispers doesn't work well. People worry, look, has something similar happened to the Bible? Did the facts just get lost along the way before they were written down? But Peter reminds us here that the people who provided the material for our New Testament saw the events that they reported firsthand. 
and we can take that claim seriously because the earliest surviving manuscripts date from very close to the time the documents were actually written, actually far closer than any of the other ancient texts. Everyone but the most sceptical of scholars would date all the New Testament documents before the end of the first century. And the Gospel accounts, the first four books of the New Testament, were probably in circulation within the lifetime of Jesus' contemporaries. And that places the Christian message on a very secure historical footing. When the documents were circulated, if they'd been untrue, they would have been discredited in a moment. People would have jumped to their feet and said, look, I was there, it didn't happen like that at all. If you think about it, attempts to rewrite history, like denying the Holocaust or something, those are usually doomed to fail because when it concerns relatively recent events um, within people's lifetimes, there are still living witnesses who can protest on the basis of their first-hand experience of the events. And yet nowhere is there that sort of protest about the New Testament. We didn't follow cleverly devised stories, says Peter. Our message is reliable because we were eyewitnesses. But more than that, it's reliable, says Peter, because we were ear witnesses. Please forgive that made-up word, but just look at verses 17 to 18, and you'll see why I'm using it. Verse 17, he, Jesus, received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain, the mountain of transfiguration. So it wasn't just what they saw in that incident that was significant. It was what they heard as well. Because, I guess, unless God had spoken, they would never have grasped exactly what that scene was all about. In fact, as so often in the lifetime of Jesus... Without God's explanation, the disciples were frankly puzzled. But God hadn't left them without a clue. He'd helped the apostles uh, in this instance and in lots of other ways to grasp the significance of what was happening in Jesus Christ. Sometimes it was through the Old Testament scriptures. In fact, the voice from heaven is quoting Old Testament scripture there. Some occasions, as here, it's a voice from heaven. Uh, then after Jesus ascended, God continued their education by his Holy Spirit, guiding them into the truth. So the end result, if you put those two strands of reliability together, is that because they were eyewitnesses, we've got accurate history, and because they were earwitnesses, we've got accurate theology, accurate understanding of what they saw. So it's not just Peter's explanation of the transfiguration. It's God's, he says, which means total reliability. We're given the facts and the interpretation. Now, I realize I've, I've gone very fast through just a few verses. Let me lift that flyer up again to plug it to you and say, come along, ask that question and air clarification questions you might have on this issue because they're really key things what this means on this last point about reliability is we don't go to the bible for the facts and then to a preacher 
or to our Bible reading notes for the interpretation. This might be more subtle than I I wanted to be, but in the Bible itself, there is a God-given interpretation within the Bible of the events that it reports. Nobody in the 21st century can say, we know better, here's our idea what it's all about. Why would we want to, given the reliability of the Apostles' message? So we've got communion today. We try and make the sermons shorter on um, those sorts of Sundays. That's what the Bible says about the Bible, if I can put it like that. It's relevant. doesn't go out of date. It's reliable. It's based on eyewitnesses who saw the events they reported and earwitnesses who had God's explanation of them. So what? Well, for that, you have to come back because the, the direction of travel in his argument is going to be trust it, keep living by it, you don't need to update it and get something else, and test everything else you hear by it in a climate where false teaching was rife in the church Peter was writing to. Take what I'm saying, he says, and take no other substitutes for it. Don't trust them. Trust the word God has given you. So I suppose the application points are, read this book and test everything else by what you find in it. Let's pray together. And we pray, Heavenly Father, for your grace to do that day by day. We thank you for the precious gift that the Bible is to us. We pray its place would be restored where people have lost confidence in that in society, in those courtrooms up and down the country, within the church itself, and indeed in our own lives, bring our lives more and more under that wonderful, liberating authority that we find in the Bible. We pray it, Father, for Jesus' sake. Amen.